0: morning. Also going to dismiss our children downstairs. This is intended to be the third week in a four-week series called The Truth We Believe. And yet it's really the third and final week in this series called The Truth We Believe because the truth we believed last Sunday was that people should stay home and be safe. Uh, An awkward day it was, but nonetheless, a decision that we felt we had to make. Thanks for your patience and grace in all of that. Uh, But here we are today, uh, week three in this series. The truth we believe. This is something that we do every single year. As I've said, each year we take a look at one of our, uh, a part of our DNA as a church, either our vision and mission uh, as a church, or our core values, or our spiritual uh, discipleship outcomes. Uh, so this year, we're in, the, in that rotation, and we're taking a look at our core values, and that core value is truth. So each of these weeks, we're taking a, a focused look at the value of truth, because we believe that matters, right? What we believe matters, uh, and, and even some of the finer points of, of our understanding of Scripture is important, that when we, uh, because we want to know and love God, and because we know that our understanding of God our understanding of the truth has a radical impact on how we live and how we relate to God and even relate with one another, uh, it's important for us to consider some of these things. Uh, as we've said before, this has kind of been in concert with a, a uh, survey uh, that Ligonier put out that they do every two years called The State of Theology, where they had uh, like 30 or four, uh, 39, 40 statements that they were just seeing whether or not people agreed or disagreed with them. And so we put that out for you all in early December and uh, got about 40 responses, which we were grateful for. And so today, uh, we go into our third week. Uh, The first week, we took a look at uh, whether or not the smallest sins that we commit uh, deserve eternal damnation, uh, which we said, yes, because of the holiness of God. That is true. And then uh, two weeks ago, uh, Jeremy took a look at uh, whether or not Jesus was the first and foremost created being right this uh, an ancient uh, heresy was this idea that jesus was a created being and what jeremy showed us is that from the book of colossians and really throughout the scriptures we see that jesus is not a creature he is creator amen Uh, and so today we turn up the controversy just a little bit and we take a look at statement nine of ligonier's state of theology Which says this, turn your attention to the screen. Statement 9. Is it up there? I can't see, no? Statement 9. The Holy Spirit gives a spiritual new birth or new life before a person has faith in Jesus Christ. Take a look at it again. Read it carefully. You see the emphasis on the word before. This is an issue uh, of order. An issue of cause. Not necessarily in time, but logically. What is the cause of the other? You could... uh, So I'll say it again. you agree or disagree? The Holy Spirit gives a spiritual new birth or new life before... A person has faith in Jesus Christ. Agree or disagree? Well, the results that we had were that 64% of respondents disagreed with that statement, 23% were undecided, and 13% agreed. So you see, really, a majority and a clear minority, those who would agree with that statement. Again, assuming a logical order here, not necessarily in time, but thinking about cause, one that causes the other, the fundamental question is this, what do the scriptures teach? What comes first? Does being born again come first or does faith come first does god give us new birth in response to our faith or does god or i'm sorry is faith our response to god's gift of new birth Some of you are like, you know, why does this even matter? We'll see that there's significance attached to these things. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Turn with me. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. This is God's Word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Here's our friend Nicodemus again. You remember last month, Jeremy uh, walked through uh, John 3, 16 through 18 as this conversation with Nicodemus moves on. And Jesus talks about that famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So here we are again just a month later, back to where the story originates. And this man named Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee, uh, that is someone who uh, was known for strict observance of the law. These were the, as the Jesus' storybook Bible calls them, right? The super-duper holy people, right? Parents know what I'm talking about. People who had it all together, ethically, morally, on the outside. Man, they were the super-duper holy people. So Nicodemus is that. He's, he's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's part of, probably part of the Sanhedrin, which is the council that really carried the authority and, and represented uh, the nation. He was a master teacher being a part of that Sanhedrin. This guy, Nicodemus, was a person of influence and religious prominence amongst the Jewish people. And, as we see, Nicodemus is someone that had seen and heard Jesus uh, uh, in his teaching and also the signs that he was doing. And he had uh, witnessed this and now developed an opinion about Jesus. Nicodemus knows about jesus right verse two rabbi sign of respect maybe not total clarity about who jesus is but nonetheless a sign of respect approaching him in the night comes to jesus and he tells jesus listen listen we know that you are a teacher come from god we know who you are it's clear to us we know we see it and then he goes on to say why No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Listen, Jesus, it's clear that you're a teacher that's come from God because there's absolutely no other way that you could be doing these signs. Right? It's just it's clear to us, it's obvious. The signs that you're doing, the way that you're doing them, are so far and above and beyond normal expectation. It's clearly a sign that God is with you. You're a teacher. That has come from God. So appreciate all you're doing. We get it. We understand who you are. It's clear to us. We know that you're a teacher that comes from God. It's the only possible way. It's the only possible way that Jesus could be doing these signs. That condition was necessary and met. That he must, be, he must come from God. So, so Nicodemus knows. But if we take a look back into chapter 2 we should be well aware of the fact that it's Jesus who knows. It's Jesus that knows uh, who we are. Jesus understands completely. So while Nicodemus comes, and uh, like many of us, may have a, a certain understanding based on what we observe and how we interact with that, we may have a pat- particular view of Jesus. We understand who he is. We get it. But really, it's Jesus who knows. It's Jesus Who understands perfectly who we are. Look at what it says. Verse 23 of chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man. What does it say? For he himself knew what was in man. So while Nicodemus knows, it's really Jesus who knows. He knows all people. He knows you. Can I just pause there for a minute? Jesus knows you. He doesn't just know things about you. Jesus knows you. Everything about you, your past, present, and future, your motives, your, your, your thoughts, your actions, he's fully aware of who you are. Jesus knows you. You cannot hide any information, motive, inclination of the heart, any action from Jesus. I've literally been a bachelor for going on three days now as my family's in Cleveland. Man, the secret things of the Maisie house... There are no secrets. Jesus knows. Amen? He knows. He knows what we are. He knows what we do. He's always with us. And so Jesus answers Nicodemus on the basis of that knowledge. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And when he says, truly, truly, he's underscoring the truth of it. And so we don't want to miss this statement. Nicodemus is not meant to miss the statement that Jesus is making. We are not, as we read this text, we are not meant to miss this statement in any way, shape, or form. Truly, truly. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Holy, 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 remember? Emphasis. Underscore it. Underline it. Bold it. Don't miss it. The emphasis of the truth is here. This is something to be heard, embraced, considered, responded to. Truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus says to us here today, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So when he says this, he emphasizes the truth of it and... He underscores a necessary condition. Don't miss the word unless. Unless. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless condition. I'm looking at the next one. One is born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. So you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. To experience it. To to understand it, to see it, you must be born again. It is a necessary condition. That term born again, it's important to think about what it means, especially because, right, all the surveys that are done out there in the world, it's like there's always this defining phrase called born again Christian. I'll never forget growing up as a kid, you remember this, Dad, right? That mom, and I'm eight, seven, eight years old, I'm hearing this term for the first time. I'm a born-again Christian, my mother would say. And, and, and it seemed the way it was presented that there was something distinct about that phrase, born-again, from any other Christianity. It, it, it's a distinction that shouldn't be made. To be born again is to be Christian. To be Christian is to be born again, correct? But there's certain there must be some Christianity out there that claims to be so. That is not born again. So this term is one that we hear all the time. Statisticians do this. People that claim to be born again. 29% of Americans claim to be born again. So it's a term that is used often. But what does it mean to be born again? Well, it means also the word to be born from above. There's discussion about whether it should be born again or born from above. What's that getting at? Well, to be born again is to be born from above. That Jesus means that it's necessary that you be born from above. An origin not your own. You can't get it here in the world. It's from above. It comes from God. It comes from heaven. Not here. You must be born from above. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, new has come. This has been called regeneration. Write that word down if you've never heard it before. Regeneration. To be born again. To be born from above. Regeneration, being born again... Being born from above is a necessary condition to see, enjoy, experience, enter into the kingdom of God. If you do not have a regenerate heart, if you've not been born again, if you've not been born from above, you cannot see. You will not see. You will not enter. You will not experience. You will not enjoy all the blessings of the kingdom of God. It's an incapability without it it's a necessary condition and so jesus removes all possibility apart from this necessary condition being met so in order to see the kingdom of god you must be born again you must receive new life from above by the spirit and that's why he says even as nicodemus and us struggle with thinking through this this idea don't do not marvel Do not marvel that I said, you must be born again. Do not marvel at it. In some ways, you should know about this, Nicodemus. You should know about this need to be born again. You should know, Nicodemus, that regeneration, being born again, being born from above, is a necessary work of God. You should know this, Nicodemus. It's not the first time this has come up. Let me explain further, Jesus goes on to say. Look at what he says. Verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What does it mean to be born again? It means to be born from above. Now he's getting more specific about what it means to be born again and born from above. What does regeneration mean? It means that you are born of water and the Spirit. You see that? You're born of water and the Spirit. If you're not born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Regeneration is a necessary work of God. That is now further explained to be one being born of water and the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, you're born physically and spiritually. Okay, maybe. Maybe born... Uh, Maybe you're talking about baptism, right? Holy Spirit, water water, and baptism. Maybe. But Nicodemus should know why. Because if you really dig into the Scriptures, which Nicodemus is very familiar with, there's another time in the Old Testament where this idea of water and the Spirit is combined. Language about a new heart. Comes from Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 through 27. Write that down. Look at the words. God promises through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Water, spirit, cleansing, indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit, giving of new heart, removing old heart, giving new heart. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and what Jesus is saying to us here today, what Jesus is promising, or at least reminding of the promise, is that, yeah, I see man. I see you. I know what's inside of you. I'm fully aware. That's why I don't entrust myself to your belief based on these signs because I know who you are in the deepest part of your soul. But understand this. sprinkle clean water on you i'll put my spirit within you i'll take away your heart of stone and i'll give you a new heart transplant heart surgery and i will cause you to walk in all my ways what promise what power what grace and so what jesus is saying to nicodemus if you don't have a new heart if we don't remove your old heart and give you a new one You cannot even see the kingdom of God. You're blind to it. You can't enter it. You can't experience it. The work of the Spirit, my work of cleansing you and wiping away, that is an absolute necessary condition for you to see and enter the kingdom of God. So to be born again is to be born from above, and that is to receive a new heart No mere behavior modification will suffice. Amen? No mere lists of do's and don'ts. This is the wonder and joy of the gospel, the good news about what God has done and is doing in the lives of people, the people that he knows who they are. Sinners, wretched, vile, rebellious, deserving of his wrath. And what kind of a God does that? Promises us a new heart. Those of you today who feel the weight of your guilt, see this hope, see this promise. Receive cleansing from God and His work. Those of you who know the hardness of your heart, cry out to God for a new one. This is what he does. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, right? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Regeneration, a necessary work of God, whereby he gives dead people a new heart. What do you mean, dead people? That's a new word. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Trying to be efficient here, guys. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 9. I mean dead people. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked, I'm sorry, all once lived in, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when... We were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. Why? For what end? So that in the coming ages. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What was our state prior to being alive? Dead. Children of wrath, followers of the course of the world, dead in our trespasses and sins. But what do you mean by dead? It's kind of like that conversation with, well, what does it really mean to fear the Lord? Fear the Lord? What do you mean? does it really mean dead? Some might soften the idea of dead to be weak. As if we just need a little bit of help to pull it off ourselves. Almost a, a well-known evangelistic illustration where we're, we've fallen off the boat, we're drowning in the sea, and we're, we're, we're flailing our arms, we're trying to keep our head above water, right? And, and then the, the guy on the boat, God, throws the life preserver out, and he orchestrates the wind perfectly. He's, he's a good shot, God. So it lands uh, really close, and the wind blows, and it, and it makes its way over to the, to the drowning person. And all things have been set in order. Uh, he didn't deserve that life preserver. Some ways he jumped overboard. It's his own problem. But no, God in his grace made it all happen. He orchestrated the life preserver. And now he is savable from this drowning but he still has to do something he still has to by faith grab a hold of the life preserver right because he's incapable to get up out of on his own he's weakened maybe that's it maybe that's what dead means or maybe some may consider it to be sick there's a sickness that we have and we need a cure Kind of like the man, uh, the the other evangelistic uh, uh, um, illustration often used, where you're lying in a bed sick and you're dying. And uh, uh, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Uh, You don't deserve it. You've brought this on yourself. This condition that you have. You can't move. uh, And and really, uh, the time of your death is coming. And all of a sudden uh, God shows up with the medicine in the spoon and he brings it all the way to your mouth and he tilts it just perfectly enough so that it goes into your mouth. But understand this, it's absolutely necessary for you to swallow the medicine for you to be saved. For you to be forgiven. Both of those illustrations really show that uh, an idea that salvation is something that we cooperate with. That, that you've heard some evangelistic preachers even go as far to say, God does the 99%. We have to do the one. That's a cooperative understanding. That God does his part, and we have to do our part. And that's how we're born again. But is that really what Ephesians 2 is saying? Is that what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3? That we're cooperating with this. Can a dead person cooperate with his resurrection? See, it's just, it doesn't mean sick, it doesn't mean weak, it means dead. Death means death. A dying man is able to swallow, but a dead man can't. A drowning man is capable of grabbing the life preserver. But a drowned man is at the bottom of the ocean. Keith Matheson says In our natural state, we are not on our sick beds. We are in the grave. We are not flailing about on the surface of the sea. We are lifeless at the bottom of the ocean. We are dead. Now, what does God do when we were dead? What does God do according to his mercy? According to the great love that he has for us? What does God do when we're dead in sin? Deserving of wrath? What does God do? He makes us alive. That's what God does. He gives regeneration as a gift. He raises us from the dead on the basis of our faith. It does not say that. It says on the basis of his grace and mercy, he raises us. From the dead. And seats us with Christ. In the heavenly places. It is he who has made us alive. Regeneration. Is a necessary work of God. Is a necessary work of God. But the question is. What comes first. New birth or faith. What is the chicken and the egg. As far as I can tell. I'm no expert just what I see the scriptures teach. I know there's a lot of controversy about this in no way, shape, or form while I want to be bold and, and show my conviction and my understanding, which really the leadership of this church pretty much shares. Uh, understand this. I come to this with a, with a sense of humility, recognizing the controversy here. No one's we've got enough silly fighting going on Facebook these days. We don't need that mess, especially in the life of Renovation Church. But please hear What I believe the scriptures teach about this, and I think it really matters, our approach in our relationship with God, its origin profoundly impacts the way that we relate to Him and the way that we relate to others, even those who are far from God. These may seem like subtle nuances that at the end of the day don't matter, but these are profound implications on all of that. And as far as I can see it, as I look at that statement the Holy Spirit gives spiritual new birth before a person has faith in Jesus Christ, I have to unequivocally, wholeheartedly agree. i got to stand in the 13%. I'm not saying I'm definitely right. I'm just saying I can't seem to see it any other way based on my understanding of how God has saved and also based on my nature apart from God, dead in sin, lying at the bottom of an ocean. I encourage you to just humbly consider that. Humbly consider the fact that the scriptures might just teach that regeneration is a necessary work of God that precedes the necessary response of faith. Both necessary, even in saying this, looking at it logically in order, in no way, shape, or form, are we negating the requirement of faith? No one is messing with that. You must have faith. You're justified, declared righteous, instantaneously, immediately, by faith. I would just argue that you're not regenerated by faith. You're regenerated by the gracious intervening work of God to raise you from the dead. And the fruit of that is faith. John Piper says it this way. Birth is something done to us. It's not something that we do. It is, however, something we react to. The first cry of a newborn in Christ is faith. No faith, no newborn. Newborn, faith. Both required, both necessary for salvation. In a broader sense. Regeneration is the necessary work of God that precedes the necessary response of faith. Consider these things. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Cause. You say, well, it's, it can be translated give. Okay. Let's say it that way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us the gift of regeneration. He has given us the gift of new life. Cause giving. I'm okay with either. But this is the cause of Peter's praise and worship. Praise be to God. That's what this brings us to. Adoration. Worship. Not controversy. Worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He took His arm, as big and strong as it is, and out of the merciful nature of His being in His heart, seeing where we were, lying on the bottom of the ocean floor, Six feet under in a grave, and he grabbed a hold of us, and he lifted us and set our feet upon a rock, as the psalmist says. He saved us, he gave us a new heart, he cleansed us from all of our sin. And we cried out, We trust you, O God. That's how I see it. And it's all grace. It's all grace. It's all grace people who look at these doctrines and they get arrogant and proud and think they know, and it become, they've missed the whole point of grace. Please don't do that, Christian. You're missing the whole point of divine grace. So as we think about this truth, we wrestle with it. The only response that makes sense is one of deepened humility. Deepened humility. Humility. Right? It's, this is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Why? That no one may boast. We should be humble in our understanding of God's nature and how He saves us. We should be humble in relationship to one another. Romans is going to talk about in a couple of weeks. Like We should have a sober judgment of ourselves. We didn't cooperate with our salvation. God did it. And, and intervening... Uh, uh, Actor came into our condition and got it done. We don't do 1%. It's all of God. And that breeds humility. Oh God, I bring nothing to this. It is all of you. All of your work. And gratitude. We should be the most grateful people when we look at these doctrines. There should be not one complaint in me. I'm from CNY. We complain. Okay? That's what we do. But complaining about situational garbage, like my phone died. We should not be marked by complaining, but constant gratitude. And oh, how the Spirit is speaking to me in this regard. Because I'm so prone to whine like a baby in some of the ins and outs of life, and, and, and maybe uh, subtly call into question God's goodness toward me. Gratitude. Thank you, God. Thank you. You're all we need as we sing. And for sure, as we understand what is necessary for salvation, we reject all forms of external religion. We do not approach our relationship with God with a list of do's and don'ts. And that gives us assurance. No. We see the real issue is our heart before God. We're not just asking ourselves, have I read my Bible today? Am I giving some money? Do I vote a particular way? Do I go to small group every once in a blue moon? Okay, I'm good. No, how is your heart before God? I get made fun of a lot for that question. How's your heart? It's, it needs to be asked. As corny and stupid as it is, it needs to be asked. Where's your heart in relationship to God? That's what this is all about. The conforming of our total being, the heart, to the image of Christ. Not just something on the outside, the inside. This heart of flesh, I'm sorry, this heart of stone needs to be a heart of flesh, softened and sensitive and obedient to God. His voice, filled with the Spirit. Dependence on God, the Holy Spirit. It's not human effort. This guides our our walk with God. If it's all of grace and it's all of God, we're constantly dependent and relying upon Him for everything. Last but not least, I think this idea guides our prayer life for those who are far from God. God Give them new birth. God, raise them from the dead. Please. Open their eyes so they might see. Warm their souls from the coldness of sin. Move in their hearts by your spirit. Show them, reveal them. Because apart from you, they won't see it and they won't enter it. They have no island of righteousness in themselves to conjure up enough merit to trust in you apart from your work. Please, God, resurrect them. Yes. If you pray that prayer, you'll hear a lot of babies crying in faith. And that is our prayer. And I think this also calls us to the ministry of the word. You were born again. How? By the living and abiding word of God. You were called by the word preached. We need to be faithful to preach it here. Faithful to read it at home. And that's how God regenerates. It's how God strengthens those who are dead and those who are weak in their faith. Regeneration is the necessary work of God that precedes comes first before the necessary response of faith. I trust this was an encouragement to you. Let's pray. All glory and honor and power be unto you, O God, for your grace. Through the work of Jesus Christ, you, that you apply to us, you, by your Spirit, take your strong, mighty hand. You grab a hold of us, drowned at the bottom of the ocean, dead in a grave. You say to us, Lazarus, come forth. And just says, You created by your word out of nothing. You recreate by your word. Out of those who are dead in their sin. Give us humility. Gratitude. May we be broken in prayer for a world so far lost and dead. Praise be to you, O God. Amen.